Well, there you have another dose of audio medicine here on Straight Out of Combat Radio, brought to you by Green Zone Hero, a community of businesses that honors freedom. This veteran's story is one of extreme perseverance. He was quite aware that he was having issues connected to his service, and yet he kept going. He never gave up. You're going to find his story not only inspirational, but one that shows how important it is to talk to others. Thank you for listening. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. My name is John Krotek. Welcome to Straight Out of Combat Radio. Our veteran guest today is Big Sarge, Justin Jordan. At 19 years old, he left the beautiful town of Henderson, Kentucky. Never been there, but it sounds good. And he enlisted in the United States Air Force. During his 20 years of service, he held a variety of different jobs. Everything from cook to combat readiness readiness instructor. His most taxing job, however, would be when he was assigned as the non-commissioned officer in charge of mortuary affairs. For nearly six years, he spent his time performing human remains inspections, uniforming the deceased, organizing military escorts, arranging for burial with honors, and consoling grieving families. Justin also managed combat mortuary operations at two separate deployed locations. I can't wait to hear more about that. In late 2012, Justin decided to share a story in the book, and then I cried, stories of a mortuary NCO. His hope was the story could help others struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, often referred to as PTSD, and we've even heard we'd like to call it PTS. He is also an accomplished artist, and his works can be seen hanging on the walls of the Pentagon in the Healing Arts Display. In 2013, Justin was medically retired from the Air Force with 20 years of service. After retirement, Justin continued his advocacy and worked with the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program, where he managed the Ambassador Program. He was responsible for teaching seriously injured or ill airmen how to tell and share their stories of recovery with audiences worldwide. During his tenure there, he he trained over 55 warriors and briefed over 30,000 airmen ranging from airman to four-star general. Justin now works at Warrior's Heart, the country's only dual-diagnosis drug and alcohol treatment center that works exclusively with military, veterans, and first responders suffering from chemical dependency and psychological injuries such as PTSD and traumatic brain injury. Justin has been featured on CMT's I Love Kelly Pickler, She's a great singer, by the way, and has been a guest on over 200 radio shows nationwide. In 2015, he was awarded the American Solider Network's Hero Service Award for his work helping veterans in need. And needless to say, we're very honored and happy to have him here. That's quite a a list of credentials. And uh, thank you for your service and thank you for all the things that you've done, Justin. Welcome. Well, thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. It really is. So when when I hear you read that, it's like, wow, I like the hustle. Who is that guy? You know, no, but it does. You know what, though? But but people need to know. 
And, you know, the, the message whenever, you know, we have a guest such as you, an honored guest, is that it, it's nice to hear the stories because it's nice to know that you can actually be confronted with some serious stuff in our lives and get over it or at least try to get over it. Um, I don't know. It's just it's very motivating and inspirational to me to have guys like you on here. Um, and the show is, you know, straight out of combat. And what it's really about is you. And uh, we want to hear about you, Justin. And tell us about your childhood, man. What was Kentucky like? Well, man, you know, everything you would imagine. Uh, Benjo strumming all the time. Uh, you know, just, uh, no, it's a beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> you crazy. Uh, I, uh, I grew up, I, have, I still have a lot of ties. I have a brother that still lives there. He's the uh, city manager in Paris, Kentucky. So uh, if you can imagine that, but it's a, uh, it's a great place. People are genuine. Uh, people still say hello and wave at you, even if they don't know you, uh, just the heart and soul of America. And, you know, it's uh, the bluegrass straight through and through. Uh, you got to love basketball and thoroughbreds to live in Kentucky. Whereabouts is that Henderson? Where? It's uh, it's right in the tri-state area. So where Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky all meet, it's right there. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So did you, you know, when you were growing up in Kentucky, did you have military background in the family or what was happening? Well, I didn't, yeah, I didn't really think so. I didn't know. So I knew that my grandpa did, he was a merchant Marine. And then, uh, you know, doing some research on like ancestry.com and this, that, and the other, it's not something my family really talked about, but you know, I had a long list of, of, you know, relatives that, you know, were in the military. Uh, and I, and I found this out after the fact that my grandfather actually was an advocate. He actually got his law degree and became a DAV advocate back in the day. You know, you know, he got injured and felt like he wasn't taken care of. And so I kind of feel like I'm following his footsteps. My father and my mother were both uh, educators. My father was a, an administrator, a principal. And my mother was a math teacher. Uh, so, you know, I, I grew up in a, you know, middle-class family. Uh, and it was, you know, a lot of latchkey stuff where, you know, my mom and dad were always working and they, they really taught me early on to be in service to others. Um, that was kind of the, you know, the theme of our family. Always take care of your brother, your sister, and, and even those people in your community. So I really got a, you know, a good dose of that growing up. And I think that's kind of led me to where I'm at today, the, the passion that I have for helping others. What were some of the things that like you you and your buddies did in high school? Did you did you go shooting um, cans or what did you guys do? <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, you know, I'm messing with. I was not the greatest uh, uh, role model since my dad was my uh, principal. I was always getting in trouble. Um, I was kind of the class clown. But, you know, I really didn't, uh, you know, they taught me have everybody has clicks in high school. I was an athlete. And, uh, but I kind of, you know, crossed party lines, if you will, because I was tried to be friends with everyone. I, I really did. I didn't, you know, oh, those, those are the jocks. Those are the, you know, whatever, you know, we, we put labels on in society. I just try to get along with everybody, make everybody laugh. And that was kind of my, my MO back in high school. I was the social director of our high school, so I was the guy that everyone went to to find out where all the parties were. Uh, that's pretty cool. I can I, just looking at your picture. Somehow I get that. I can I can feel it. Uh, <laughs> but that's cool, man. So you got out. Of, you know, you graduated. Obviously, I'm sure with your parents, both educators. You know, you had to you had to hold some kind of banner or torch. 
did they did they expect that out of you for sure? I mean, was your dad rough on you or, or kind of just let you go your own way or what was it like? Well, my brother was always the uh, academic in the family, and I was always the one that kind of shirked that. I was a solid C student all the way through school, and they really didn't expect much more of me. That, but what they did teach me was that's okay. Um, that not everyone is. And I remember a conversation I had with my father, and he's still probably the wisest man I've ever met. And uh, he said, "You know, son, college isn't for everyone." <laughs> he said, um, "You might want to think about a trade." And, 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 you know, it kind of hurt my feelings. I'm like, you know, my brother went to college at 16 years old yeah. and here I am getting the talk from my father. You, you might want to be, consider a trade, which there's nothing wrong with a trade, but it, um, uh, it sparked my interest. So I tried community college and I found out very fast that it didn't work for me. And, uh, I wasn't, you know, really good at getting up on time and, and making schedules. So I started working in factories and found out really quickly that I didn't like that either and wandered into the recruiting office. And the rest is history. So you had you pick the Air Force. You just that was the first office when you walked in. <laughs> I mean, you know, no, you know, I, you know how it goes no, sometimes. Actually, I, I uh, had a friend that went to Coast Guard, and uh, he really raved about it. So I, I approached them, and they could seem, you know, less concerned. It was pretty far from my home. It was a couple hours drive to there. So I called to try to set up an appointment, and I just got a lot of, you know, pushed back, and they they weren't really interested. So. I went over to the Army and took the ASFAB for them, and they got really excited because I scored really well in the ASFAB and started bugging me to death, calling my parents at work and, you know, just everywhere. So that turned me off. So I walked into the uh, Air Force recruiter in the neighboring town and shared my experience, and they weren't impressed or, you know, they were kind of complacent about it, but they, they said, we'd like you to take the test again because we have a little higher standards in the Air Force. So I retook it and scored higher. And they uh, they asked me to join. I went in the delayed enlistment program, and next thing you know, I was in boot camp. Where'd you go to boot camp at? Uh, at Lackland Air Force Base here, right here in San Antonio, where I live now. Uh, that's where all the Air Force goes through basic training. Now, when you were going through that process, were you, I mean, your mom and dad knew what was going on. What, what did they think when you did finally raise the right hand and went in? They Oh, they were they were super proud. They were, uh, my, my parents are, are Red, white, blue patriots. Uh, they love everything about this country and the opportunities they've had uh, coming up. And uh, to have a son that was going into military um, right after 9-11, or excuse me, not 9-11, but uh, the Gulf War. Right. So I went in 93. Um, was kind of, you know, anxious for them. But at the same time, they knew it was a good fit for me. And they knew I did well. So... They were supportive 100%. I still remember my mom taking me to Kmart to buy all my uh, basic training buy list that they give you. <laughs> and she was telling everyone, including the cashier, that her son was going in the United States Air Force. That's pretty cool. That is neat. So you went down to San Antonio, did your basic there, and then I know you guys are very specialized in the Air Force. Where did where they send you after that? Well, there uh, I, I did a small stint of training here at, at Lackland. Uh, I was supposed to be a security forces, which is a police officer. That didn't work out so well. I didn't fit into that career field very well. So they asked, uh, they actually let me retrain. And I went into a career field called morale, welfare, recreation, and services, which is everything from working in the gym to the hotels to the, to working as a cook in the chow hall and a couple other jobs I didn't know existed in that career field. One of them being mortuary, which I had the opportunity to do for six years of my career. Um, 
so kind of a jack of all trades, um, uh, so to speak. And, you know, I went to my tech training school at Lowry Air Force Base. It no longer exists. It was in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. And just, you know, had a blast down there learning the trade. You know, as I talk about in the book, I didn't really care much for that, the perception of being a cook. Uh, I was nobody's cook, this, that, and the other. And a lot of the airmen in that career field feel the same way. Yeah. Uh, so it's a leadership challenge as I grew into the career field to take 55 to 60 young airmen and, and get them excited about going to work and, 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 and doing the job of being a military cook or working in the gym. So it, it was a challenge at times, but, uh, looking back, you know, over my 20 year career, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Uh, it's, it's given me opportunities. I just wouldn't have had before in any other career field. And that's something that a lot of people don't really realize. I mean, you, you know, everything is so highlighted, all these elaborate jobs and skilled positions, but there's a lot of positions that take just as much skill that you don't really think about. And if, without those positions, military doesn't function. Exactly. I mean, uh, no one thinks about the financial analyst until you don't get paid. And then they're the most important person in the world. So, you know, there's a ton of support positions out there um, that are just critical to the mission um, because, it, you, you know, your military cooks is, is, is a good example. They, they go down range just as much as anybody else. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure you've had experience going into an Air Force chow hall. It's a little different than the other branches of service. Uh, uh, they they feed our airmen very well. Well, it's pride in their job. Air Force does a lot of things differently from the Army. You know, I used to think to myself, "Geez, why didn't I do that?" You know, I'm. We have charge of quarters, and and they used to let you guys go free. It's like they they treated you mature right out of the chute. I remember that thinking, man, the Air Force is pretty cool. We used to go over to Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado and hang out with some of our friends. And it, you're right, man. It was it was definitely different. So how did you get tribal quality of life? They try to they try to make sure that you know they they kind of have the mindset that if if the airmen are happy, then the mission gets done quicker. Well, even like being a you know you mentioned the cooks, but you're right though the cooks go downrange and they're up earlier than the people doing the missions. It seems. Oh man, I, I I deployed once in the early '90s in that that position, and I can remember work can you know fifteen eighteen hour days uh, just jobbing like I've never job before and, you know, not having any days off for the entire deployment. But those are some of my fondest memories in the service, the, the times, because, you know, through struggle, we grow. And as a team, we, we always were together. We always were in the same tents, you know, and the, the conditions were bad. But when you would see those men and women that were outside the wire come through and you were able to give them just a little smile, a little for a little moment of, to put that stuff they just seen in the in, in the background and focus on something that is enjoyable, it was a, it was a good feeling. Where was your first deployment? Where was that? Whew, my first deployment was to Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia. Uh, then uh, shortly after that, they uh, had the bombing in Kobar Towers, and I went back and helped deploy everyone to PSAB, which is Prince Sultan Air Base. Uh, so that those were two of my early deployments. I did four total. Yeah. How did you make the transfer from cook into mortuary services? Was that a volunteer position or what, how did that happen? No, well, actually what happened was I was um, stationed here at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio for about six years. Uh, 
uh, working a variety of different jobs, mostly in the fitness arena. There was an opportunity to become a combat readiness instructor, teaching my career field to uh, people getting ready to go downrange. And I'd had two deployments under my belt. So, you know, I was pretty much going to get it. And I, I did. I mean, I got to work at the Silver Flag in Tyndall Air Force Base, which is the uh, the support so we call it the support group, the support functions, uh, civil engineers and services folks, their training ground. So because we deployed so heavily, they had a, before they would deploy, they would have a uh, in route deployment. And that's kind of what we did is we trained them everything from how to set bed downs up, you know, tents uh, right. to build, you know, austere field kitchens. And so, and part of that was mortuary affairs, deployed mortuary affairs as well as search and recovery operations downrange. So I was teaching that, and when I got to my next base uh, four years later, uh, they put me in charge of the unit deployment management section, which also had the mortuary aspect, and I did that for about six years. Can you describe it without, you know, we don't want to give away all the book, but can you describe that? Well, I mean, it's um, it's, it's a lot of people understand it, that they think it's uh, just the, the funerals. That's a very small portion of it. And usually we have a section dedicated to that that's outside of the mortuary affairs section, uh, the honor guard section. And they're the ones that deliver the honors at every funeral. But the mortuary affairs person uh, on a base, anytime someone dies, no matter what the cause, while they're active duty on a base or off base, if they're stationed there, uh, has a team of uh, casualty assistance crew that goes through, uh, you know, and briefs the family on their benefits, whether it be life insurance, this, that, and the other. Then you have the mortuary affairs uh, section that comes through and briefs them on casketing and their benefits to the families. Uh, part of that job is going and following the remains all the way from, you know, uh, the coroner, because every active duty member is required to have a an autopsy regardless of circumstance. It's a federal uh, statute. And then uh, to, the, to the contract funeral home, all the way to what we call internment, which is burial. Uh, so that can be a lengthy process, and you actually have to put hands on the remains uh, three or four different times during that, as there are three inspections that you have to do on the remains. Uh, one is post-autopsy, uh, making sure that you give instructions to the contract funeral home as, you know, if there's some damage to certain areas of the, the body. Uh, you want them to build that up, use certain compounds, uh, making sure that they're using the correct amount of bombing fluid, turning the body over to make sure that there's not any pooling of blood on the back and maybe they need hypodermic uh, embalming, um, all the way to uniforming. And then we would be there to make sure the uniform was within uh, uh, regulations um, and that they were fully dressed and nothing was missed. And we did this so the family didn't have to do that. Um, you know, we would do cremations, and then all the while, each night, we're briefing the uh, – we would assign uh, summary courts officers to gather their personal effects, and we'd assign a family liaison officer. That person that that family can go to have any questions asked. So we would brief the family liaison officer and a lot of times the family directly on the disposition of the remains. So during that, I got to face my own mortality almost daily, and it was uh, – Something that I didn't really think was going to hit me, but after a year or two of doing it, um, it caused quite a, a hiccup in my own mental well-being. And as hard as I fought it, it didn't matter. It fought back twice as hard. I kept doing my job because I was, you know, for one time in my career, I felt like I was important to the mission. 
to the overall spectrum of things. I had the job of taking care of the deceased to make sure that my brothers and sisters were, were put to rest with dignity. Like I treated each one of them like it was my brother or my sister and it took a toll on me, but in a way it also helped me because if I didn't have these experiences, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. I wouldn't be able to help the, the vast amount of veterans that I've been able to help to this point. Um, these experiences, you know, like I gotta say, one of my, my themes is through struggle we grow. Well, you couldn't be more right. I mean, and you've certainly described some things to me that I never considered just how, you know, three or four times that you were in contact with the deceased and, you know, that, that, that responsibility, especially when you're around so many grieving people that don't expect something like that to happen, takes a certain type of person. And, and you're obviously fit the bill, but, you know, as you say, it took its toll. You know, and for me, the catalyst moment was um, when, when it becomes personal. You know, day to day, driving home, you've seen some, I've seen some horrible, horrible things. Um, and the things that would just take the breath out of you. Uh, but I watched a friend die in front of me in a parking lot on Davis Moth in the Air Force Base. Uh, he was hit by a forklift uh, on his birthday, mm-hmm. just walking in a parking lot. And I, when I arrived on scene, he was still alive under the forklift, the way my memory uh, recollects it. Uh, and, you know, for years, I've dream- I have reoccurring dreams and of that moment, you know, I didn't offer him anything. The next time I saw him, when they lifted it off, we knew that he was going to bleed out and he did. And, and I can remember sitting there with him waiting on the corner to arrive for almost four hours in the Arizona sun, just getting angry and bitter and just wanted to, you know, pump, throw punch someone. Why are they not here? Why, you know, and all of these things. And that was kind of the, 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 the rock that, that broke the dam for me. Uh, after that, everything I'd seen to that point came rushing in. Everything represented a way to die. Everything caused me anxiety. Everything. I would dissociate so bad that I would end up 100 miles from my house and not know how I got there. And then, of course, the anxiety coupled with that, how do I tell my wife that I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I'm supposed to be in Albuquerque? You know, it just came crashing down for me. And I couldn't do anything about it. That's the hardest thing about post-traumatic stress disorder is no matter how hard you fight, there's until you learn the tools, until you learn the coping mechanisms, you just can't do anything about it. Just It's it's two steps forward, ten steps back, and you have so many regressions, and you just want to give up. (laughs) But you have to be be stronger than it. Yeah, I I hear that sentiment. You know, my foray started at 11 years old, so I feel you. And – were you still in the military when that when all this came crashing down, or were you out already? No, I was still in. Uh, matter of fact, I um, that actually that case actually happened about midway through my tour, right, a little bit about four years into it of a six year, and I just kind of stomached it and didn't share because you know one thing about PTSD is you, no one will know unless you let them because we, we we're good at hiding it. <laughs> So I would spend a good part of my, uh, almost a month in a row, I would eat lunch in the mental health clinic's parking lot, trying to get the courage to go inside and get help. Because I knew in my mind that that was my career was over. When I finally went in uh, and got help, the doctor was like, 
you have post-traumatic stress disorder, and we're going to get you through it, and it's not a career ender. We don't think that you're a danger to yourself or others, so we're going to try to help you with some therapies. So he did, and we worked through some therapies, and um, actually he um, asked me to try to get an assignment because everything I'd seen on that base had uh, was triggering for me. Whether it be this gate, I would avoid that gate because I'd seen someone die here or this, that, and the other. Or I wouldn't go up this road because there was a motorcycle wreck there. Uh, you name it. Uh, this guy hung himself in base housing, so I never – so, you know, I had very little ways to go. So I was always trying to avoid these situations. So he asked me to try to get an assignment, and I did. And I got uh, accepted to be on the Air Force IG team out at Kirtland. And I was a senior NCO at that time. So I got uh, – permanent change of station PCS over to Kirtland Air Force Base. And I thought I was cured because I'd already see, sought the mental health uh, help. I didn't know enough about PTSD at the time. A couple of things happened while I was there that caused my anxiety to spike, and it came back rushing 10 times worse than I've ever had it. Mm-hmm. My dissociations got worse. I started having olfactory hallucinations where I'd smell bodies on my uniform. Uh, you know, it would show up PT gear all the time, and then and they're then people start asking, point fingers, why does this guy get to wear PT gear all day? Uh, and I just didn't have the courage to ask for, uh, ask my leadership for help until I did. And I finally just went up to my chief and said, I need help. And he helped me get to the, to the mental health unit and they worked with me. They, I met, you know, some amazing mental health providers and, and they knew that I didn't want to do pills because I was, pills caused me anxiety. So in 2010, I was allowed to be the first active duty member to be uh, served with a aid of a PTSD service dog. That's you know, in Dallas. I, and, uh, you know, I think an important thing to point out here, Justin, for for the listeners, is that you had you mentioned it. You had the courage to finally go get help, and and I think it's important because before you make that decision, you think that you're weak or. People are going to look down on you. You have all these fears that never really come to fruition. And once you make that very first important step, even though it's a tough road, man, and you know it is, it's still yeah. it's still important to the whole process. It is. And, and part of it is educating those around you. Um, because I, there's there were some bumps in the road. You know, that stigma exists for a very good reason. Because <laughs> it exists that those people – in the military, a lot of times don't know what to do with someone that has a mental health issue. So just get them out of here is the first knee jerk reaction. Uh, for me, I didn't have that experience at first. Uh, I had a lot of support. Uh, the Air Force rallied around me and said, hey, we're going to let this guy stay. And he's going and, you know, Airman Magazine came a calling and talking about Dallas and how she helped me because she was a vital part of my recovery. Uh, she would lick my neck before my exit so I wouldn't end up 100 miles from home because it would bring me out of it. Uh, when I would have an olfactory hallucination, she would, I could put my hand on her and it would go away. I kind of took the role of advocate from that point forward because, you know, they kind of pushed me to the forefront and said, hey, you can help a lot of people with your story. So when people would ask me about her, I would share with her how she helps me and I would get excited about it. You know, it's kind of like when you go to a restaurant, you taste something great. You want everybody at the table to taste it. I want everybody to know how much Dallas was helping me and how, you know, how, you know, you don't have to succumb to the stigma of mental health issues. Well, about a year and a half after I had her, I got kicked out of a restaurant with her. Uh, Cops were called. It was a bad scene. Now she became my anxiety. 
So everywhere I would go. So I had a regression. I asked to get inpatient treatment to get help because I was grasping at straws. I tried everything else. And that inpatient stay, um, you know, I was treated like a prisoner. My shoestrings got taken. I wasn't suicidal, but it didn't matter because that's how they treated mental health at that particular facility. Right. And I just spent three weeks, first three weeks there with my arms crossed, pissed off, doing, you know, maybe seeing a counselor once a week, you know. But what I did learn there is we did uh, CBT, uh, CPT, cognitive processing therapy, is I found writing. Because I would, you know, we'd do group therapies and we were, the mission each day was to share a part of your story that was still triggering. Well, each day I'd come in with a different story. And uh, I would look up sometimes and even the therapist would be in tears. And then after all the men that were in there with me would come up to me and go, man, I don't know how you made it through that. Now, these are, these are high level operators. These are, you know, the nation's best coming to me, a cook saying, man, your story really helped me. I didn't know how to think of that. I didn't feel at the time that I deserved to have PTSD. That's something reserved for you guys, for them door kickers, those guys that went outside the wire. I didn't deserve to have it. One day I was in a group and I shared this sentiment with the group that I didn't deserve it. And this guy, I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big man. I'm 6'3", 250 pounds. I'm not used to having people yoke me up. But this guy came across the room, grabbed me by my collar and threw me against the wall like a rag doll. And he was a pararescueman. I'll never forget it. He looked me dead in the eye because I wouldn't trade places with you in a million years. It's time to get better. We're going to do this together. That's awesome. Quite literally literally saved my life. Because that's the moment I decided that PTSD will not beat me. And you have to make that stand. You just have to. You do. That's what I tell people to this day. You know, tap into that warrior ethos. Tap into that. We all have it, no matter what job you did in the military. We all have that pride when the uh, national anthem plays. We all have that that something extra that that servicemen and women have. So use that to beat this enemy at home, because you can beat it. You know, people tell me, "How did you get over it?" Well, I tell you, I don't get over it. I never got over it. I learned to walk next to it. I learned to use my tools that my therapists have given me, that my brothers and sisters have given me, to walk next to it. And when I hit curve in the road, I know how to react. I've trained myself to do that, but I still have my days. You know, I, I days that you know, not, Justin, that that is an incredible freaking description of exactly. You don't ever overcome it. I've never heard anybody say it like that. You walk next to it, and when the triggers come, you know how to behave. Yes, sir. And yeah. I still get stuck in parking lots. For that day that when my buddy died, it was in a parking lot. So parking lots create an enormous amount of anxiety for me and fear. And I'm not talking about, you know, because like you mentioned it before, you know, as, as men and or young men and women in this country, we're taught on the baseball diamonds and football fields and soccer fields of America to suck it up, quit being a baby. And we're in that's even, you know, compounded more once you go through like basic military training and, and different things because you have to be a warfighter, switch on, switch off. But when we have something that we can't, that's where your brain goes. Quit being a baby, suck it up. Well, your brain will throw a curveball. It doesn't care. And it will start doing things to you that these symptoms will, will manifest in a physical way. And, you know, whether it be heart rate, whether it be sweaty palms, whether it be, you know, 
dissociations or, or, or olfactory hallucinations. It's, I never thought that even existed until it happened to me, and I couldn't even have a uniform on without you know getting ill, like physically ill. So, you know, it's a long, long road to recovery. It really is. It's <laughs> it, the it is. I've ever fought, but to this day, I still have days where I can't get out of certain parking lots. I can't get out of my car. And then I'll have to park in a handicap spot. I'm authorized to, but I feel like a dirtbag. I feel like that's reserved for a guy with no legs. But then I also know that if I don't, then it's going to beat me. And I can't allow that. So every day I look, and I don't use them often, but when I'm having that moment, rather to cut and run, I'll opt for that. And if someone comes up to me and is upset, you don't look handicapped or this, that, and the other, then I'll, I choose to, to embrace them with positivity. I choose to explain my situation. I tell them that story that day and share with them what I'm going through. And hopefully they'll gain some empathy and they'll tell their friend. Or I could be 250 pound and throw punch them and then be arrested. And, you know, the, the story that goes along with that. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I choose not to. I choose not to let it beat me because there's anxiety in that too. So, you know, gross positivity. Always trying to stay positive, even when you don't feel like being positive, is my shield. And that's how I, I walk next to it. So when did you leave the Air Force? When did you finally retire? You obviously wrote the well, book when you got out. Well, no, I wrote it actually in my last year of service. Wow. Uh, in 2012. Uh, and I got out in 2013. I was medically retired. After this, the stay in the hospital, that flagged my medical board. And I uh, had new leadership and the, the support dissolved. Um, I was actually asked to work from home from the, for the last year of my career. It's uh, still something that causes me quite a bit of despair because I was at the top of my game. I was pretty much going to make E8 first cycle in my mind. Um, then I was on to chief. As long as I, you know, kept on, I was doing the right things. Uh, and then to be asked to work from home really kind of <laughs> it defeated me. It validated everything that anyone is ever concerned about dealing with a mental illness. Well, it's a career ender. Well, it was. And, you know, I had experienced a lot of support, and then all of a sudden it dwindled. And I don't blame them. I don't sit there and I just don't think they were educated enough. I don't think they understood what was going on, and, and we try to put things in boxes. We're really good at supporting men and women that come back from uh, combat injured with, with no legs, and that's a hard but those men and women that come back with invisible wounds, we suck at supporting them Yeah, uh, as a military. And that's kind of what led me into help, you know, working the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program. You know, the book came out and I started getting messages from people like, your book saved my life. What? That didn't compute to me. I just wrote it to get out of my head. But it felt good and that advocacy was like oh wow if i can help another and another and that's that was kind of my you know it may be self-serving in a way but if it helped me to help others then i'm all for it so tell us so about t yeah t tell us about the ambassador program well the ambassador program is something i um uh, i helped the air force create um basically it was i was out there telling my story doing public speaking with the book and i had opportunities to meet certain people and, and it opened a lot of doors for me uh, because I wrote the book. Well, the Air Force wanted to glean that and say, we've got a lot, we've got 7,000 wounded warriors, whether they're sick, ill, or injured, that feel thrown away. And that's the thing I heard every time. 
I felt thrown away. Through the med board process, I felt thrown away. And so what we would do is get them together for a week-long training at different places across the country, either, you know, usually class ranges from 5 to 15. Uh, they would sign up, and then we would have to vet them and improve them. And then we would just spend a week sharing stories. I would share mine and how I have had some success in, in sharing it with different levels of leadership in the Air Force. And then they would share theirs. And I heard some stories that were would make your just tear your heart out of your chest and how they were treated. And it happens to this day and how, you know, I had everything from MST to where their commanders would, you know, that's military sexual trauma for uh, those that don't know. And their command, after they were raped and, and almost beat to death, and their commander's telling them to embrace the suck. What is that? <laughs> you know, to, you know, stories of resiliency where, you know, person lost their leg and went back and it's the first female ever to fly an aircraft as with an amputee. She was in one of my classes, uh, Christy Wise. She's amazing. Uh, so I got to teach all of these people how I share my story and how it's helped me. And, and the one thing that it did, it was it recharged us all. Cause we finally, cause once you share your story, it no longer owns you. It no longer creates the narrative of your life. It's now out there and the weight is lifted. And then I kind of acted as their manager, so speak. And anytime an opportunity for a warrior to speak came up, I would, you know, look to my, who's the best warrior for that. And I would send them, uh, uh, you know, what we call TDY, you know, temporary duty over there to share their story, whether it be a commander's conference. We were in every air combat command commander's conference, you know, 15 to 20 brand new commanders learning how to be commanders. And here's a warrior sharing their story of non-support. But you have to do it in a way it's tactful and professional because, you know, if you get up there and just drop a bunch of F-bombs, your story's lost. Yeah. So we would kind of help them mold that, you know, and we were – the highest levels, all the way up to chief of staff level, we were briefing. Uh, Air Force Academy, Coronas, you name it. We were there was always a call to have a warrior because their stories are so impactful. And uh, man, I just I was I was very lucky to be able to do that for two years. That's awesome work, man. And, and, and you know, it's helpful in your own recovery, but to be able to be part of the recovery of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of others is awesome. You know, so that that catapulted you into Warrior's Heart. Was that the Warrior's Heart come after? It did. And what happened with Warrior's Heart was actually, it's, I live in Bandera, Texas, which is a small town outside of San Antonio, and that's where Warrior's Heart is. In 2015, they bought the property, and, and uh, it's a 543 acre ranch. Um, and it was meant to be, it was owned by Conoco Phillips at one time. So it was meant to be a guest ranch, uh, kind of where they'd bring their executive team to, you know, you know, chill out so to speak and and uh, you know relax rest and relaxation so i mean five-star amenities they got two bass lakes their own airstrip you name it it's a beautiful property and they bought it because the founders josh and lisa lennon uh had run six different treatment centers before and the one community they could not service ever was military veterans law enforcement first responders because mm -hmm. when they would get them in they would clam up and they wouldn't share their stories because these people didn't get it. Imagine being a police officer and going into treatment and wondering if one of the people in treatment is somebody that you've arrested. Are you going to open up? No, you're not. Same thing with military veterans. There's a lot of times, or, or active duty even, you just sit there with your arms crossed. These people can't possibly understand. Or people become aghast above your story. You know, 
maybe you were on a, a route patrol or something like that and they threw a little kid in front of you and you had to hit the gas or hit the brake and everybody dies, what do you do? Those are stories that our men and women are struggling with. Uh, and you, in a civilian type treatment center, I've even heard some, but we're not going to share any combat stories, okay? You know, what? How do we get to the healing unless we're doing that? That's what Warrior's Heart provides. It provides a place that's safe for our warriors. We don't take their shoestrings. We don't treat them like prisoners. We use the battle buddy system. You know, we treat them like humans. We have resiliency programs abound. We have a service dog training program on site. We have metal shop. We have a woodworking shop where they're making great, those American flags you see all over that are wood, all over the internet. They're making those, punishers, you name it. They make tomahawks. Uh, we do jiu-jitsu, crossfit. And it's, it's, it's an amazing place. And I just happened into it because I was at my daughter's softball game and I met the founders. And I shared with, with them what I was doing at the ambassador program. They were like, well, you should come out and tour. And I did, and that turned into a job offer. And, uh, you know, I've really found my own heart at Warrior's Heart. Oh, congratulations. That's a, that's a fantastic story. Tell me about Kelly Pickler. What's going on with the CMT? What did you do there? And tell me about that. Well, that's a, that's a funny story. Not a funny story, but uh, uh, along the way, one day, uh, I had been speaking at the uh, Veterans Airlift Command. If you're not familiar, they're a, a group of private pilots that fly wounded warriors to medical appointments on, on Lear jets, million-dollar planes. This is a group of men and women that are dedicated to helping our wounded, sick, ill, or injured. Well, when I was going through my med board process, uh, I asked them for a flight, and I was kind of one of their first that's asked for an invisible wound because I had a service dog, and you know it was kind of creating anxiety for me. So they asked me to actually come speak at their, their gala, uh, and I did, and I shared my story, and it and, you know, it met with a a really good response. And I met some people there, John Wayne Walding, who, who's an amazing uh, special operator, Green Beret, amputee, went back downrange after amputation and uh, qualified as a, you know, Green Beret sniper. He's, he's an amazing American, and we became fast friends. Uh, well, he shared my book with the Kyle family of the American sniper, yeah. uh, Wayne and Debbie Kyle, and, uh, of course, Jeff. And said, you got to read this book. And out of the blue, Wayne called me and said, hey, uh, I don't know you. John has told me about you and read your book. And I just want to reach out to you and tell you that we love you and we want to be your friend. Well, I'm sitting there like, what? <laughs> you know, like pointing to the phone. Wayne, Kyle. You know, to my wife. She's like, what? <laughs> and, 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 you know, I was, I was struck by the celebrity at first, you know, but he's just such a great person. And we've become great friends. I talk to him weekly. He's kind of become my second father figure. Whenever I need to bounce something off, I call Wayne. And, you know, I know it's a long way around, but to get to the Kelly Pickler, he actually asked me to come down to the second or our third memorial to, he called me and said, hey, man, I've been there, dropped out. Do you want to sell some books, make some money? And I was like, absolutely, and hang out with you. So I went down to Dallas and sold some books at the uh, Chris Kyle Memorial and with a plan of donating all the proceeds to their to their charity. Um, you know, I just thought it was cool to get to hang out with celebrities and all these people that were going to be there. And to be accepted into that community was pretty – well, it was – That is cool. <laughs> because – that day, he actually, you know, he, he got me down there to give me uh, a special rifle that they had made just for me. And the very next day was the shooting of the Kelly Pickler show. And it was me and Brian Anderson 
uh, we were going to be with uh, Kyle and Kelly. Their shooting partners, they're, you know, me and Brian were a team and Kelly and Kyle were a team and we were matched up against them. So they shot the episode. Uh, you know, we shoot, shot all day and had a great time. And I got to meet uh, Kelly and Kyle. They were such great people. I still talk to them to this day. And it was an amazing, uh, it was one of the highlights of my life. It really was. And to have such great friends like the Kyle family and John Wayne Walding, all because of the book. And, you know, they're just great Americans. That's an awesome story. You know, you know, doing this show just makes and inspires me to just do want to do so much more to spread the word, but to tell the stories. And, and what do you want people to know about combat veterans? And what do you want? You know, what's your personal wisdom, Justin? What do you want civilians to know? And then what do you want your brothers and sisters you know, you've dealt with thousands of them and you've touched the hearts of so many and helped so many. But those that might not have seen your book or know about you, what do you want them to know? So civilians and non-civilians. Well, for the civilians, I would say definitely that we're not broken. Um, you have some of the most amazing leadership qualities in a military retiree or even a veteran. We do leadership better than anyone. Uh, one of the hardest things that I've struggled with coming into the civilian world is um, transitioning into the workforce. Now, a lot of times, mind you, I get in my own way, but a lot of times you had to start over. You take a person that's led hundreds of people uh, and, and gone through numerous college-level leadership courses to put them in the lowest possible position, it's ridiculous. You know, so see what they're worth do you get your education on what they can do for you and utilize them to their fullest potential because you're going to find that worker there is better than anyone you've ever seen. So that's what I like to tell them to my military brothers and sisters. What I like to say to you is don't sell yourself short. You know, if you want it, go get it. People come to me all the time. It's like, yeah, I want to write a book someday. Then write it, sit down tonight, start and write it. Just like when you're in the military. Just do it. And if it sucks, do another one. You are the best the country has to offer, and nothing can get in your way. If you have a vision, do it, because it can be possible. Uh, I'm living, breathing proof. Absolutely, you are. Tell us how people get your book. And uh, and if they want you, tell us how they get you. Well, there's a couple ways. Uh, of course, uh, the book can be got on just about any format. Amazon's probably the most popular Um also, you can email me direct at justinjordan1217 at gmail.com if you want a signed copy. I'd be happy to get that out to you. But Amazon is probably the easiest way to get it um, in all the different formats. Uh, Walmart picked it up last year, so you can get it there as well. Um, if you want to come hear me speak, you want to have me speak, uh, I work for the uh, Bravo 748 uh uh, combat and uh, veterans speakers consortium so you can go to bravo748.com get me there to if you want to speak uh, hire me for a speaking engagement uh, i love doing those those are uh, those are awesome and then you know reach out to my publisher tactical16.com that's uh, eric shaw uh, who's doing amazing things helping uh, veterans tell their story i was actually their first guy at, well I, of course eric was their first guy but i was their first guy outside of that that they signed in, in 2012 and kind of been there since the beginning. And he's starting to, I mean, not starting to, he's been doing amazing things with this company, him and his wife and his whole leadership team there that he's put together. It's, I mean, 
we're looking at success all the way around. So if you surround yourself with good people like Eric and then Kristen and, and Jeremy and Jennifer that you know, on his leadership team and some of the people he's bringing in like yourself, uh, Pete Turner, some of those other folks. I mean, we can't do nothing but win. Absolutely. Yeah. That's all the others. Well, you know, I got to tell you, Big Sarge, um, I appreciate you. I appreciate the time that you spent with me on Straight Out of Combat. I just want to let everybody know that they've got to get a copy of your book. And then I cried, Stories of a Mortuary NCO. I um, I thank you for your skill sets and for your great heart. And uh, we read you loud and clear. I don't know if we can still say that. It isn't like Lima Charlie, but we – we appreciate i'm telling you man i appreciate you more than you'll ever know and i know there's thousands of hearts you've touched and we just want to get the books in the hands of of all those people out there and i I want to thank our listeners too big sarge for being here listening to you and me chit chat on straight out of combat and i want everybody out there to know and i love the way you said it you're not broken and they're not broken and we're not broken and we're not going to give up and we have a lot to offer and more than anyone, guys like you, brothers and sisters in arms that have seen things that some people may never see, understand more than anyone that freedom is not free. So powerful story. You're a powerful guy. And I look forward to the day that we can shake hands and talk about other things. So God bless you. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Big Sarge, thank you. thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to meeting you down the road. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. God bless. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Down.